seen are not the results of mass hysteria. Mass hysteria. What do they think we're imagining all this? Shut up! In all parts of the country. The wave of murder which is sweeping the eastern third of the nation is being committed by creatures who feast upon the flesh of their victims. First eyewitness accounts of this grisly development came from people who were understandably frightened and almost incoherent. Officials and newsmen at first discounted those eyewitness descriptions as being beyond belief. However, the reports persisted. The medical examinations of some of the victims bore out the fact that they had been partially devoured. I think we have some late word of just arriving, and I'll interrupt to bring this to you. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. It's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you, but it does seem to be a fact. And you might recognize that segment from being the 1968 George Romero film, Night of the Living Dead, which I can legally play portions of due to an interesting uh, copyright history. They had neglected to get the copyright for that specific title of the film, so it, it became open use. So uh, people, I think that's part of maybe where the zombie films became so popular is the idea can be so easily ripped off, but has a little segment uh, online from that film, and it focuses on uh, these creatures coming back from the dead and feeding on human flesh, which cuts at the Maybe I shouldn't put it that way. Gets to the uh, fear of of cannibalism, and uh, that is on this uh, October 2021 special is what I am going to focus on with you. I have a really good book from 1994 by a Hans Askenazi. Uh, last name A-S-K-E-N-A-S-Y. He is a Ph.D. Uh, forensic clinical psychologist. Uh, has authored many articles and books, including Are We All Nazis? And a critically acclaimed Hitler's Secrets. So I thought this subject matter was apropos for this special Halloween spooky season. You might want to check out some of our earlier podcasts from uh, last year. We had a uh, special about the beginning of of Halloween, uh, as it was called uh, then, Beggar's Night in the 1930s and the use of replacement behavior. And then uh, the year before, I had a Halloween special that uh, concerned uh, zombies and the uh, phenomenon of of shaping and resurgence, shaping zombie behavior. That was from that was from 2019. I'll put those in the link below if you like 
Halloween stuff. This year it's about cannibalism. So I've got the, the book by Hans Askenazi, uh, Cannibalism, From Sacrifice to Survival. And he's got a very, oh, very uh, pleasant looking cover on here, as you can might imagine. Maybe I can post that. And then also I've got an article, uh, a little more recent, about uh, the psychological science behind cannibalism. And I'll, I'll sum it up with uh, cannibalism and social learning theory as a, is observed in the animal world, but we'll, we'll get to that shortly. But it's uh, three different readings about, uh, about cannibalism, something that is eating at us. So this book is, uh, really covers a wide range cannibalism from sacrifice to survival and it starts out throughout this book you will encounter many weird and bloody things it is not my fault our subject after all is by definition not for the faint-hearted and Stephen King no no vice in such matters may be proven wrong in his assertion that you can't beat the bible as horror literature the author goes on, I suspect that the first image that comes to the average person's mind when hearing the word cannibalism is some ferocious primitive fry tribe in the jungles of Africa, New Guinea, or Brazil cooking one of their unfortunate enemies, or perhaps some poor shipwrecked sailor doomed to devour his mate. As we shall see, things are not quite as simple as all that. Let us begin by asking ourselves three primary questions. First, take this scenario. We are a group of people stranded far from anywhere after, say, a plane crash. There are few, if any, provisions, and reality soon sets in. We are all becoming painfully aware, for example, that man can live a lot longer without food, in essence flesh, than water in essence blood, about a gallon and a half in an average-sized adult, okay? If only some apparent alternative to certain death is the survival of some through cannibalism. The first of our three questions, with many sub-questions, is what would we do? What should we do? If anyone is to be killed, who? The youngest or the oldest? The healthiest, fattest, or sickest? Women and children first or last? Why? Or is it to be a sort of final lottery with everyone drawing straws? Who is to do the killing? How is it to be done? And the cooking? The sub-questions are endless. How would we decide? On what basis would we answer? What are the implications, psychological, moral, legal, medical, religious, whatever? Do we in fact know what we would do? Do we have any idea what real thirst and hunger are? What the pain of starving to death feels like? And if we should be lucky and survive, are we and our fellow cannibals to be tried in a court of law? On what charges? With what, quote, punishment, unquote? to fit the, quote, crime. Finally, what if the roles were reversed? In essence, what if you were the judge or juror in the case involving cannibalism? 
Is he who has never really starved to death a fair judge? Is he who has never nearly died from a lack of water a fair juror? Who at this point would constitute a jury of our peers? With the old issue of, There but the grace, therefore the grace, taking on a new meaning, how would you decide? Uh -huh. I think on reflection that we will find it worthwhile to ponder these problems a bit. As we shall see, famines and accidents have occurred often enough and will occur again. And not always to others. Our second primary question. Cannibalism, and another name is uh, anthropophagy. That's A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-P-H-A-G-Y. Defined as the eating of human flesh by human beings has often been called one of man's last taboos. A taboo, in turn, being defined as something, quote, banned on grounds of morality, or, would you believe, taste, unquote. But is it man's last taboo, or perhaps the first, or the original sin of all races? Or is it, after all, logical, normal, in short, in the nature of things? By far... The most common reason for human beings eating one another is what we would expect, hunger. Psychologically speaking, this is le a less compelling aspect of cannibalism. If there is nothing else to eat, why not human flesh? There is a German proverb, which I won't dare pronounce, but the translation is, In an emergency, the devil devours flies. Eating corpses under survival conditions may be disagreeable and distressing, but it is difficult to offer significant logical, legal, or moral objections to it. But what about normal times? What if the question were asked, what should we, why should we not eat the dead? The point has been made. As one social scientist in Papua New Guinea concluded, got it in quotes, anthropologically speaking, the fact that we ourselves should persist in a superstitious or at least sentimental prejudice against human flesh is more puzzling than the fact that the Ora Cava, that's spelled O-R-O-K-A-I-V-A, -A, a born hunter, should see fit to enjoy perfectly good meat when he gets it, unquote. From an economic or materialistic viewpoint, this argument is impeccable. It is therefore unreasonable, as anthropologists Rice and Hogg maintain, to call this most natural appetite for good red meat unnatural. Further attempts to persuade cannibals otherwise left them not surprisingly unconvinced. Thus, the natives in New Caledonia in the southwest Pacific, are said to have been taken aback by the disgust of Europeans and asked, Do you want to forbid us the fish of the ocean? A 19th century Mayoruna cannibal remarked to another European visitor, When you die, wouldn't you rather be eaten by your own kinsmen than by maggots? And when a chief of the Miranas M-I-R-A-N-H-A-S, was asked why his people practiced cannibalism. 
He asserted that it was entirely new to him that some people thought it an abominable custom. Quote, you whites, he noted in an astute manner, will not eat crocodiles or apes, although they taste good. If you do not have so many pigs and crabs, you would eat crocodiles and apes, for hunger hurts. It is all a matter of habit. Hmm. When I have killed an enemy, it is better to eat him than to let him go to waste. Big game is rare because it does not lay eggs like turtles. The bad thing is not being eaten, but death. If I am slain, whether our tribal enemy eats me or not, I know of no game which tastes better than men. You whites really are too dainty. Unquote. Is this then a bad idea whose time has come, or one that would be strangled at birth? The 1973 movie Soylent Green, which won an award as Best Science Fiction Film of the Year, comes to mind. It really is a great movie. Charlton Heston. It featured Charlton Heston and the literally and figuratively dying Edward G. Robinson. We find this description in Jay Nash and Stanley Ross's The Motion Picture Guide. It's around 2020, and the Big Apple is rotten to the core. The population explosion has placed more than 40 million people in the greater New York area, many of whom live on the streets, in the subways, in abandoned vehicles, and burnout buildings. And it says here the actual population estimates for New York is uh, 16.6 million and Tokyo 28 million. That's what it was at the time this book was written. Following something called the suicide ditorium, suicide ditorium, the dead are being shipped along a belt and sent to a large manufacturing device at one end, only to emerge at the other end as the ubiquitous wafers Soylent Green. In a climatic, climactic scene, Heston, a detective, exclaims in agony, Soylent Green is people! I don't mean to give the movie away. Soylent Green was a message picture, and they even hired a technical consultant, a professor and futurist. Futurist is a profession, apparently. If this is the way he sees it, he has lost his faith in humankind's intelligence. Then again, he may be right. Avoid taking children because it may cause bad dreams. Indeed. So the book goes on. Now for our third primary question. Once upon a time, the Caribbean islands were populated by village people, gentle, kind, and inept at war. During the time of the Incas or thereabouts, raids from invasions began by ferociously warlike groups of cannibals from along the South American coast. When Christopher Columbus first landed in the Bahamas, he was apparently shocked to discover that the native Carib Indians, that's C-A-R-I-B, ate all their male prisoners of war. The admiral himself ventured no farther than to one of the Carib houses, where he saw a number of skulls hung from the ceiling and some baskets full of what he presumed to be men's bones. 
He called them caribales, which came to be pronounced cannibals, thus giving their name both to the Caribbean Sea and the custom of eating human flesh. The raids continued for generations. Great sport for the Caribs. According to someone named De Rochefort, and that is, you know, the D-E, and then R-O-C-H-E-F-O-R-T, they described the French as, quote, delicious, unquote, and the English as so-so, the Dutch as tasteless, and the Spaniards as so tough as to be virtually inedible. It was the last two who were the Caribs' doom, since killing natives in turn constituted great sport for the valiant Christian soldiers of his most holy majesty in Spain. When the Caribs were finally reduced to a few hundred, quote, and their temperament to a state usually described as mild and melancholy, unquote, one sure way to offend them was to call them cannibals. Today, cannibals is said to exist perhaps in certain isolated parts of the world, remote regions in New Guinea, tiny pockets of East Africa, the jungle between Argentina and Paraguay, and deep in Brazil's most inaccessible Mato Grosso. In the Amazon basin, cannibals living much like prehistoric man now and then are presumed also to consume one of the agents of their destruction, government envoys. Alas! Good book. Yet the mere mention of their name and the implication of their dining habits have always evoked a reaction combining unspeakable horror, revulsion, and yet a strange fascination for most of us. Why should this be so? Arguably, there is probably a preoccupation above all with the aspects of violence, death, and taboo. Torture and killing, with flesh-eating thrown in as a bonus, are always spectacles, entertainment that has been time-tested for approval down through the ages. A modern TV audience hardly needs to be reminded of this, least of all Americans. In 1993, U.S. gun numbered 40,000. By contrast, just 23 people were killed by guns in Great Britain and 82 in Japan. I'm surprised it's that many. Every other home in a, on an American street is inhabited by a gun owner. Every other home. It is apparently part of human nature then to pay rapt attention to such unusual sights and sounds as blood spurting from wounds, loud streaking, and howling, or a part of our anatomy being roasted over a fire, or for that matter to read and write about such things. But there are other reasons, and if so, what are they? What are the sudden and pervasive contemporary interest in this subject, in fact and fiction? From the chilling and Academy Award-winning movie Silence of, of the Lambs to the film Alive and Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula, which during its first weekend of release grossed $31 million. To serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer in Wisconsin, Chikatilo uh, in Russia who tortured, murdered, and cannibalized at least 52 people, to Nelson in Orange County, California. Much of this shortly. But what is going on? These then are our three basic questions. 
with their many sub-questions. What would we do to survive that plane crash? Why should we not eat flesh? And how do we explain both the historical interest in cannibalism as well as the sudden resurgence in interest today? Is cannibalism one of man's last taboos? To arrive at the answers we need first to review the evidence on cannibalism, such as it is. Let us do this together, and I strongly encourage you to critically evaluate the data so that you will feel comfortable agreeing or disagreeing with my conclusions, the author's conclusions. You are the judge. So Hans uh, Askenazi goes on to cover all kinds of things, the Donner Party Pass incident, uh, starvation in Leningrad, the famous uh, Andy's plane crash, uh, you know, of the, the movie Alive was made about. This is a, a segment, a little bit shorter segment, um, that I find quite interesting. And he writes, a special consideration is the Catholic Christian's belief in transubstantiation, the spiritual reunion of the Eucharist. Lest the reader think otherwise, the ceremony is not symbolic. The presumption is that bread and wine actually become flesh and blood. And he has a quote here. In the year A.D. 1215, Pope Innocent III summoned not only the patriarchs of Jerusalem and Constantinople, but 29 archbishops and 412 bishops, 800 abbots and priors, and the envoys of all the major rulers of Europe, including the Holy Roman Emperor and the kings of England and France, Aragon and Hungary, to attend the Fourth Lateran Council. This assembly of all who were most distinguished in the Catholic world was to decree it as an article of faith that Christians must believe when the priest at the altar pronounced the phrase, this is, I won't read the Latin, I won't do that to you. This is my body. That the bread and wine were changed into the body and blood of Christ. In the words of the definition, the body and blood of Jesus Christ are truly contained under the appearance of bread and wine in the sacrament of the altar. The bread being transubstantiated into the body and the wine into the blood, unquote. Those who partook of the host, and of course the H is capitalized, had formerly eaten it as a symbol of the body of Christ. Now it was no, no longer a symbol, but an actuality, and anyone who doubted it was guilty of heresy. This was the culmination of more than a thousand years of disagreement within the church as to what Jesus had meant when he spoke to his disciples on the occasion of the Last Supper. the Last Supper, In the words of Mark, As they were eating, he took bread and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So later on, it says in AD 1215, however, 
this inconsistency, meaning within the church, had to be resolved. This, the beginning of the great century of papal supremacy, was not a time for either tolerance or dissent. The church intended to wield temporal as well as spiritual power, and it could do so only if its followers submitted absolutely to the will of God, in quotes. Pope Innocent III was a mystic but a worldly one, and perhaps the doctrine of transubstantiation was something of a test case. Whatever the reason, Christianity adopted into its most sacred ritual an act of pure cannibalism, an unequivocal God-eating on the most primitive level. To the faithful, the bread became not a symbol of the fresh flesh of Christ, but as real as if the flesh itself had been sliced and baked. Modern Catholics, of course, have had some reforms since that time. That's a different issue, but an interesting uh, take on transubstantiation. Now, in this wonderful Halloween season, depending on whenever you're listening to this, I'm going to skip to uh, chapter, ah, chapter 13. And this is on werewolves, witches, and vampires. Starts off, a werewolf is said to be a human being who can at will change his or her shape into that of a wolf, retaining his own intelligence and cunning while gaining the beast's ferocity. A voluntary werewolf typically abstains his power of transformation from the devil in a Faustian exchange. An involuntary werewolf comes into his power as a result of a family curse or a spell cast by a sorcerer or witch out of hate for pay at the devil's behest. He may also become one by being born in a certain tribe, uh, according to a particular quote here, another variation on the werewolf story. The antidotes against werewolves varied also. If caught, they could be bound and exercised with potions, a common one consisting of half an ounce of sulfur, an equal amount of uh, what's called the devil's dung, and a quarter ounce of castor in clear spring water. Silver bullets, as you know, were recommended as an alternate method. Historically speaking, scapegoating the wolf has been one of man's favorite sports, it seems, down to our times. The Roman writer uh, Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, gave an account of werewolves in his Historia Naturalis, though he passed on the phenomenon with skepticism. There, I read some Latin for you. This Historia Naturalis, natural history, I assume. However, by Roman times, doctors had begun to recognize a form of mental disorder, lycopenthry, in which the patient imagines himself to be a wolf, quote, with the wolf's savagery and lust for raw flesh, unquote. In 1594, a case was reported in which a lycanthrope told his captors in confidence that he was really a wolf, but that his skin was smooth on the surface because all the hairs were on the inside. To cure him of his delusions, the man's extremities were amputated, following which he died still uncured. Well, okay, cures worse than the disease, I guess. More recently, groups of German U-boats 
during the Battle of the Atlantic were known as wolf packs. When that war ended, it was widely assumed that the eradication of Nazism would be a long and difficult process. The Nazis were thought to have prepared for a protracted guerrilla campaign by submerging in society a number of so-called werewolves, none of whom ever materialized. Uh, the plot had pretty much uh, been a facade. Similarly, American soldiers during uh, returning then from World War II to the Upper Midwest began to refer to all wolves as Nazis and hunted them down with great intensity. Even the Navajo tribe in the Southwest accused werewolves of raiding graveyards and mutilating bodies. That's interesting. Barry Lopez, in his splendid book of Wolves and Men, observes that, quote, throughout history, man has externalized his bestial nature, finding a scapegoat upon which he could heap his sins and whose sacrificial death would be his atonement. He has put his sins of greed, lust, and deception upon the wolf and put the wolf to death in literature, in folklore, and in real life. The wolf and the look-alike werewolf became everyone's symbol of evil. So he goes an extended quote here. The werewolf stories from northern Europe typically were more robust, adventurous, and inventive than the classical Greek and Roman stories. Olaus Magnus writes in his History of the Goths at the Christmas Werewolves Gathering at Christmas, werewolves gathered together for drinking bouts and forcefully entered houses for the purpose of raiding the wine cellar. Okay. Debauchery and sacrilege, which became common in werewolf stories later, are not the themes of the early Teutonic werewolf tales. Violence is, however, in the Icelandic saga of the Volsungs, King Volsung's daughter Signy, S-I-G-N-Y, marries a king named Sigur, S-I-G-G-E-I-R, Sigur, whose mother is a werewolf, turns around and kills Volsung and puts his ten sons into stocks to feed his mother. The Roman church, which dominated medieval life in Europe, exploited the sinister image of wolves in order to create a sense of real devils prowling in a real world. During the years of the Inquisition, the church sought to smother social and political unrest and to maintain secular control by flushing out werewolves in the community and putting them to death. Among all the heretics and political enemies of the state who were marched through the courts and condemned as werewolves were an unending number of wildly insane, the epileptic, the guilty-minded, the pathologically disturbed, the neurotically guilt-ridden. They were condemned to society's enemies, because their connection with wolves was tenuous in the extreme, and that with werewolves highly imagined. At a time when no one knew anything about genetics, the idea of a child suffering from Down syndrome, small ears, a broad forehead, a flat nose, prominent teeth, was the offspring of a wench and a werewolf, was perfectly plausible. And that goes to our uh, conceptualization of mental illness. And back in medieval times, they just had a supernatural explanation. In modern times, we have a kind of a uh, diagnostic explanation, but it's putting people in these categories instead of really understanding 
the mechanics of what's happened. I don't think we're that doing much better than what they did in medieval times, only a little bit. I'm going to go on just a little bit more here. And that was an aside. In 1275, a deranged woman named Angela de la Barth confessed to the Inquisition. When you confess that the Inquisition is because uh, they uh, really made you hurt and you had to say something. So she confessed at the Inquisition that Toulouse, that she had given birth to a creature that was half wolf, half snake, and that she kept it alive by feeding it human babies she stole. In 1598, an entire family of werewolves was recorded in western France. Two sisters, their brother, and a son were known as the werewolves of St. Cloud. One of the girls named Peronet uh, suffered from lycanthropic, lycanthropic excuse me, hysteria and ran about on all fours. The entire family was burned to death. Later, wives of the emerging middle class referred to prostitutes as wolves because they thought of them as winches consuming the souls of their innocent sons. Interestingly, in ancient Rome, prostitutes had been called lupae, L-U-P-A-E, she-wolves. Nor was it just wolves. Legends of werebeasts are almost universal. Primitive beliefs in shape-shifting, the human ability to change into an animal form, combined with beliefs in sorcery to produce a fearsome local werebeast that goes about at night usually, but not always slaying human beings. There were were-hyenas and were-lions in Africa. Were-leopards in Assam, were-foxes in Japan, were-bears in Norway and where jaguars in South America. Lopez concluded with his grim observation, by standing around a burning stake, jeering and cursing an accused werewolf, a person demonstrated an allegiance to his human nature and increased his own sense of well-being. The tragedy, I think, is the proper word, is that of projection, of such self-hatred was never satisfied. No amount of carnage, no pile of wolves in the village square, no amount of human beings burned as werewolves was enough to end it. It is, I suppose, not, the diff not that different from the slaughter of Jews at the hands of the Nazis, except that when it happens to animals, it's easier to forget. In the case of the werewolf, however, it must be recalled that we are talking about human beings. He goes on to someone, if you can find this book, go ahead and track it down. Cannibalism from Sacrifice to Survival, Hans Eskenazi. Uh, the version I have published in 1994 by Prometheus Books. So look it up, really good book. And the other great thing about this book is how he emphasizes taking a very skeptical view of history, of these reports about what happened the cannibalism among natives or in in uh, popular criminal cases and things like that to view it with a little bit of a skeptical eye which is always a good it's a good thing with any report is it is under the there's always something influencing whether that time or current times uh, reporting the story so 
Uh, overall, really good book. Check it out. Now I'm going to go to something a little bit different. But keeping with our theme of cannibalism, this is from an author, Angus Chin. Cannibalism. It's perfectly natural, a new scientific history argues. This is from February 22nd, 2017. It's on it's on National Public Radio's website, Food for Thought category, cannibalism. It's perfectly natural. Angus Chin. Uh, there are very few scenarios where I could see myself considering the flesh of a fellow human being as food and the ultimatum eat or die tomorrow comes up in all of them. Most people are probably with me on this, the writer says. But a book by Bill Shute, S-C-H-U-T-T, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History, reveals that from a scientific perspective, there is a predictable calculus for when human beings and animals go cannibal. And far more humans and animals have dipped into the world of cannibalism than you might have imagined. Shoot a vertebrate zoologist uh, at the American Museum of Natural History, dives into cannibalism's history, its place in the kingdom of Animalia, and the source of its taboo. The book encompasses a wide range of stories, uh, far wider than the usual uh, reports of gruesomeness. He makes no secret of his distaste for these over-sensationalized accounts, not because of the gore, but because it, there's just so much more to cannibalism. Instead, he opts for a keenly scientific approach. Quote, I'm taking things that seem grotesque and misunderstood and horrify people and putting it through the eyes of a zoologist, he says. And what does a zoologist see exactly? He sees the perfect natural sense of cannibalism, the evolutionary biology of eating one's own kind, and oddly, the wonder of it all. Macabre summaries of men eating men are present too. But by far the most interesting section on human cannibalism in the book is Schutz's description of the long history of European aristocrats eating human parts as medicine. Quote, upper class types and even members of the British royalty applied drink and war concoctions prepared from human body parts, really, and they continue to do so until the end of the 18th century, Shute writes in his book. We caught up with Shute to chat about the book. The interview below has been edited for length, so they asked some questions and he graciously answers. I hadn't heard of medicinal, medicinal cannibalism you described in Europe, starting with the ancient Greek physician uh, Galen of uh, Pergamon, P-E-R-G-A-M-O-N, and continuing to the 20th century. That was one thing that really surprised me. So then shoot answers. Yeah, especially given the Western taboo around cannibalism, which has been around since the time of the Greeks, to find out that for hundreds of years, for many countries in Europe, pretty much every body part you could think of was used to cure something or the other. That was a complete shock. 
I don't even know where some of these uh, purported cures came from. The blood was going to cure epilepsy or how the human fat could cure diseases. The most interesting one to me was mummies. And I think that was a mistranslation to the Arabs. The word mumia, M-U-M-I-A, meant the stuff they used to bind wounds and prep mummies. In the translations, the Europeans thought they meant real mummies had medicinal values, so they started grinding <laughs> they started grinding mummies up. So the reporter asks, uh, Chen asks, how did you get to seeing cannibals as something that was really very natural. He responds, shoot response, cannibalism as a behavior has various functions, from parental care to reproductive strategy to foraging. If you look at insects, snails, crustaceans, fish, toads, salamanders, there's plenty of cannibalism. When we're talking about cobfish and the million eggs they lay, they're not looking at their eggs like juniors they're like a handful of raisins it's just food my favorite is these legless amphibians the mother provides her skin to the young hatchlings and they peel her skin like a grape that to me was wild and amazing and i'd never heard of it when you get to mammals it's rarer because you're dealing with less offspring more parental care. The cannibalism you do see sometimes takes place because of environmental stresses. Okay, so now we're getting to the importance of the environment in this phenomenon. Seems like the decision to cannibalize is a pretty simple calculus, the reporter says. You do it when you need, when the need for food outweighs the risk of getting a disease. So that's what the reporter says, and then Shoot responds, yep. Though when you're starving, I don't know if you're thinking. This person might have a disease I could catch, he gives an example. No, you're just at the end of the rope and you're going to die. It's natural behavior. Scientists have looked at starvation. At a certain point, one of the predictable behaviors that you'll see is cannibalism. If you start with dead bodies and then get to the extreme where you kill somebody and eat them. Then there's a case where some people will just uh, not eat dead bodies and starve to death. There's plenty of mammals and animals that don't practice the kind of prenatal care or sexual cannibalism or that lifeboat strategy, as in, you know, you're starving on a lifeboat and you eat your fellow passengers. But if you stress any creature out enough, I think the odds are that they'll eat their own kind. Now the reporter uh, says, in the book you describe getting invited over for dinner by one of your, oh my word, by one of your sources to eat her placenta. How was that? Was it good? Here's the answer. Yeah, it was really the prep that made it taste good. Granted, the husband was a chef, and so he knew how to prepare it uh, in that style, and they used a really nice wine I had brought. It smelled great. It didn't taste bad. I wouldn't do it again. I don't have any regrets I did this. 
She said that after birth, she had all sorts of ups and downs, baby blues and stuff like that. Somebody turned her onto this and she tried it and she felt a lot better. She readily acknowledged that it was probably a placebo effect, which is a real thing. Okay. The reporter says, would you eat another human, not a placenta? Not because of overcrowding, predation, competition, or hunger. Just because. That's the question. And he says, no. If I was put into a life or death situation like the guys who got stranded in the Andes, and that's from the film Alive, or in a besieged city with no alternatives, then I can't say that I wouldn't consume human flesh. Would I do it again just for kicks? Why would I? There's no need for that. Not unless it really came down to a real horror situation where there was nothing else to eat. I try not to think of that possibility. Well, that's a dedicated author. So for the final uh, course in this meal, I'm going to go to uh, a book. Uh, the, the book is Welfare of the Laying Hen. And it's got a special chapter in there. Chapter 22 is Cannibalism by R.C. Newberry. Now, if you thought that the subject of that we're speaking of uh, couldn't be brought into the light of behavior analysis in some way, well, you got to get used to uh, the host of this podcast because... I did find something, and that's this particular uh, book chapter. comes out as comes off like a pretty good article, and they've got the abstract, and it, it's a it's about chickens and cannibalism, and social learning theory. So it starts out: cannibalism is a serious welfare problem in laying hens, which can cause high mortality. Cannibalistic behavior is learned by individual birds and can be spread to others through social learning. In this chapter, multiple factors influencing the risk of cannibalism are reviewed. These include beak form, light intensity, genetic predisposition, age, sex, timing of sexual maturation, nutrition, food form, availability of attractive foraging materials, learning opportunities, availability of preferred victims, use of perches and nest boxes, and group size. Strategies for controlling cannibalism without resorting to beak trimming are suggested, based on knowledge about factors affecting the motivation and opportunity to perform the behavior. And by the way, it, it has been said that chickens are the most abused animals on the planet, or one of the worst uh, one of the worst cases. So you'll probably get the idea of that as I as I read some of this. So in the introduction, cannibalism is the act of consuming tissues of other members of the same species, whether living or dead, and at any stage. Of the life cycle. This behavior is widespread across the animal kingdom and is a common problem in poultry, especially in domestic fowl of some layer strains. 
In laying hens, cannibalism may be directed towards different tissues ranging from eggs to feathers. However, this chapter will focus on the cannibalistic pecking and tearing of skin, underlying tissues, and internal organs of living animals, since it is this problem that raises the most serious concern from an animal welfare perspective. Cannibalistic behavior adversely affects the well-being of attacked birds, as evidenced by injuries which, if extensive, result in death. In hens with intact beaks, mortality due to cannibalism can affect over 30% of the flock. At any age, cannibalistic pecks may be directed toward the toes or feathered areas of the body, and especially the tail. When directed towards feathered regions, cannibalism is correlated with severe feather pecking. This may be because the tail feathers start to bleed when broken during severe feather pecking, and the blood then stimulates cannibalistic pecking. Accidental injuries resulting in bleeding may also stimulate more cannibalism. Cloacal cannibalism, uh, which here is referred to vent pecking, the cloaca is uh, in animal anatomy, is the posterior orifice that serves as the uh, opening for digestive, reproductive, and urinary tracts of many vertebrate animals, birds included. So cloacal cannibalism, the most severe and fatal form of cannibalism, is rarely observed prior to the onset of lay. In cloacal cannibalism, pecks at the cloaca proceed to the removal and consumption of intestines and other internal organs, referred to as pick-out in the poultry industry. In some cases, access to the internal organs is gained by pecking the abdomen rather than the cloaca. A little farther down, it says, A difficulty in studying cannibalism in laying hens is that it is often not clear whether injurious pecking has led to anything other than the incidental ingestion of blood in the process of pecking, and the published literature rarely provides an indication of the extent of tissue consumption. Furthermore, when a bird is discovered in the process of being subjected to pecks by other flock members, and these pecks have broken the skin and precipitated bleeding, the only humane course of action is to remove the bird immediately from its attackers. Thus, one does not know whether the attack would have led to subsequent ingestion of tissues. For the purpose of this chapter, the term cannibalism will therefore include incidences of injurious pecking that may or may not have led to true cannibalism if the bird remained in the group. Cannibalism is notoriously unpredictable among these chickens. It has been reported in all types of housing system, including cages, pens, aviaries, and free-range systems. Okay, under the heading, Need for Alternatives to Beak Trimming to Control Cannibalism. And this shows the treatment of chickens and what they go through. In commercial practice, cannibalism is often controlled by beak trimming. In revolving uh, removal of up to two two thirds of the upper beak 
and less of the lower beak. Beak trimming reduces the incidence of beak-inflicted injuries, presumably because removal of the sharp hook of the upper beak mandible reduces the bird's ability to puncture and tear flesh. In addition, chronic pain resulting from this procedure may result in pecs being delivered in a less forceful manner, thereby making them less effective in causing tissue damage. Now later on it says beak trimming causes acute pain when performed after 10 days of age may cause chronic pain due to neuromas. Depending on the timing and severity of the initial cut, there may be significant beak regrowth necessitating additional trimming at a later age to control cannibalism. Although beak trimming reduces the opportunity for birds to cause injuries to flock mates, it does not eliminate the motivation to peck at other birds. Furthermore, beak trimming does not entirely prevent cannibalism and is viewed by some as a mutilation. Well, I don't know how else you'd view it. For these reasons, the practice is now banned or discouraged in several European countries and will not be permitted in England uh, after 2010. This article was written before that. In addition, major supermarket and restaurant customers are calling upon egg producers to find alternatives to beak trimming for the control of cannibalism. Cannibalism has also been controlled by the application of a plastic of plastic devices that interfere with beak closure, therefore, therefore reducing the chances the pecs will cause damage. However, these devices have been associated with behavioral signs of discomfort, I imagine so, and sometimes fall off. If cannibalism is to be controlled without resorting to beak trimming or mechanical devices that control the symptoms without addressing the underlying causes of this behavior, improved knowledge about cannibalistic behavior is then needed. Okay. Need for alternatives to permanently dim lighting to control cannibalism. So now we're getting to some environmental changes here. Good visibility is necessary for the performance of cannibalistic behavior. Cannibalism increases with increased light intensity and is commonly controlled by lowering the light intensity. Red lights have also been used to control cannibalism. Controlling cannibalism by rearing chicks in permanently dim or monochromatic lighting or fitting hens with colored contact lenses or goggles is questionable because vision impairment has been associated with eye disorders, elevated mortality, and reduced productivity. Moreover, if birds are kept in dim light, it is necessary to raise the light intensity for daily bird and equipment inspection. And this practice is associated with cannibalism. Furthermore, cannibalism is a problem in free-range production, where exposure to bright light is inevitable. Under the heading, select genetic strains that are not cannibalistic. I knew this would come up the issue of the genetics of the animal. So a promising alternative to beak trimming and dim lighting is to select against cannibalism in breeding programs. The incidence of cannibalism varies between strains. In using a, a group selection program, uh, two researchers in 1993 and then another in 96 have demonstrated that mortality due to beak-inflicted injuries is heritable. 
However, cannibalism is multifactorial and selection of hens that do not exhibit cannibalism could be achieved by many different mechanisms. For example, it is possible to select hens that are non-cannibalistic because they are blind and thus unable to express the behavior. To be able to assess the ethics of using a particular strain of non-cannibalistic hens, it is important to identify the mechanisms by which cannibalism is being controlled through genetic selection. In addition, given that behavior results from the interaction between genotype and the environment, it cannot be assumed that selection against cannibalism in one environment will produce a line that does not exhibit cannibalism in any environment. Controlling the behavior is likely to be most effective when utilizing relatively non-cannibalistic strains in combination with specific housing design features and husbandry techniques. Avoid confusing cannibalism with social aggression. In the poultry industry, cannibalism is also often referred to as aggressive behavior. Lumping cannibalism with social aggression may not be fruitful, given that the motivation underlying these two types of behavior appear to be different. For example, two researchers in 2002 found that social aggression involving pecks and threats directed towards the head was elevated when groups of four unfamiliar hens were housed together, but there was no increase in injurious pecks toward other body parts. Furthermore, in flocks of several hundred hens observed a reduction in aggression among the hens when housed with males, whereas male presence had no impact on the incidence of cloacal damage among the hens. During a cannibalistic attack, there may be multiple cannibals. They are typically pecking from behind or to the side of the victim. The pecks are typically delivered in a foraging posture with the head and neck lowered, and the pecks incorporated tugging, tearing, and swallowing components. By contrast, in a didactic aggressive interaction, the protagonists are typically facing each other, and pecks are typically delivered while in an upright posture using a rapid downward stabbing motion. Social aggression may be a risk factor for cannibalism if beak-inflicted injuries occurring during aggressive behavior result in bleeding that stimulates cannibalism. However, given that cannibalistic and aggressive behavior take different forms and occur in different contexts, yet it cannot be assumed that a reduction in social aggression will be accompanied by a reduction in cannibalism. In particular, beak-inflicted injuries of body parts other than the head are unlikely to be related to social aggression. Now we get to a very important part of this, which is the heading, Minimize Opportunities to Learn Cannibalistic Behavior. And the author writes, If in the course of exploratory pecking, birds break feathers or skin and bleeding ensues, the blood appears to stimulate further pecking, suggesting that it has reward value. Although pheasants and domestic chicks have been reported to show an initial aversion to dishes containing blood, researchers reported that laying hens from cannibalistic flocks peck more at bundles of blood-soaked than plain feathers. An initial attraction to the red color of blood in the absence of other reinforcing properties seems unlikely, uh, since a researcher in 2000 found no difference in the rate of pecking at red versus blue dyed feathers. 
However, the degree of contrast between blood-stained feathers and the background color of the plumage may affect the extent to which other birds notice a wounded bird. Further, once cannibalistic behavior has become established within a flock, the color and odor of blood may act as a conditioned stimuli attracting cannibals to wounded birds. In 2002, it was observed that after a period of habituation, pullets of a cannibalistic strain readily consumed chicken blood from open petri dishes. Once they made the association between a petri dish and a blood reward, they were motivated to work to gain access to the blood by picking holes through a cover placed over the petri dish. Once learned, they performed this pecking behavior to access the blood despite being fed a nutritiously complete diet suggesting that the behavior was not motivated by hunger. Observations of uh, contra-free loading, in which animals work for food even though identical food is freely available, suggest that the performance of the vigorous pecking behavior required to obtain access to the blood and the information gained from exposing the covered food source may have been rewarding in themselves. It has been observed that one death from cannibalism is often followed by more deaths in the same cage to a lesser extent adjacent cages. This outcome could be due to similarity in microenvironmental conditions in that region of the poultry house, such as relatively bright lighting. However, it is also possible that cannibalism can be spread through social learning, in which the birds acquire a new behavior through observation of or interaction with other birds. Although some predisposing motivational factors may be common to different forms of cannibalism, individuals within a flock tend to specialize in a particular form of cannibalism, suggesting that birds pay attention to the specific body part that other birds are pecking and then learn to peck at that location for a food reward. The incidence of attacks to specific body parts varies between different flocks of the same strain kept under, under similar conditions, suggesting that birds may repeat the particular form of attack that they have learned rather than generalizing to other body parts. Learned behavior. Blood and tissue can be viewed as a novel food source for chickens that have not previously participated in cannibalism. Cannibalism also requires specific foraging behavior to break skin and expose the underlying blood and tissue. Previous reports indicate that foraging on a novel food source is increased in naive birds if they observe other birds foraging on the novel food. Okay. In 2002, a researcher established that a cannibalism task requires hens to peck and break a cover to gain access to the chicken blood, which they then consumed was learned individually by some birds, which were de called the demonstrators, and then transmitted to others, which are called the naive observers, through social learning. Social learning was more effective when the demonstrators performed the task in the same cage as the observers, but also occurred to a lesser degree when the observers were able to watch the demonstrators performing the task in an adjacent cage. A combination of individual and social learning would therefore explain an escalating incidence of severity of cannibalism over time, and an increasing number of individuals found to be participating in cannibalistic attacks. 
Once the behavior has become well established, it may be very difficult to extinguish. Therefore, emphasis should be on, placed on minimizing opportunities for learning this behavior. For example, housing should be designated in such a way that accidental bleeding injuries are avoided, and any injured or dead bird should be immediately removed from the flock. That seems rather difficult to me, but okay. The effectiveness of applying tar or other anti-pecking compounds to wounds in preventing further pecking has not been studied systematically, but frequent reapplication to maintain coverage may be impractical on a commercial basis. Okay. It may be beneficial to install visual barriers between and within enclosures to limit spread of the behavior through social learning. In addition, enrichment of the environment with novel objects and materials such as string may help channel exploratory pecking in a harmless direction. Okay, so my point with all of this, and the, the author kind of goes on in his conclusion to, to summarize that it's, these, it's a multifactorial situation, as it is with all behaviors. And he looks at the genetic components and the housing and the social learning, which I find quite interesting. So if I, I'd make a point with this uh, podcast, this particular topic, which uh, seems a bit covering many areas from uh, cannibalism throughout history uh, to the uh, cannibalism seen uh, in different island nations reported uh, in legend and seen among animals, among chickens, is that even the most bizarre, the most gruesome behaviors, and even these things that are seen, uh, I'll say, in a primitive setting or in animal settings, we, we tend to say, okay, it must be inherent. It must be within us somewhere in our genetic makeup and deep within our history. And I don't dispute that. But also we've seen from examples we've talked about and from these chickens here at the last that uh, the environment has a whole lot to do even with the most bizarre, the most uh, disturbing behaviors. So in this uh, Halloween season, you see some scary stuff. You're inclined to think, well... Uh, Maybe it's just their evil nature or their primitive nature. But maybe it's a little bit more. Maybe these environmental tendencies may have something to do even with the scariest stuff that we encounter. And that's it for now. This has been Criminal Behaviorology. I hope you have uh, a happy Halloween, and we're going to see you at our next podcast. Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com. <laughs>